Well, after uh, taking uh, a few weeks off uh, to celebrate uh, this, the season of Easter, uh, we continue this morning in the Gospel of Mark. So I thought it might be helpful uh, to uh, retrace our steps uh, just a bit. Um, chapter 1 of the Gospel of Mark, uh, Mark's narrative uh, of the life of Jesus, which follows his power-packed prologue, opens with Jesus proclaiming the gospel of the inbreaking kingdom of God, uh, where he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And from there, uh, this is followed by the display uh, of Jesus' authority. Uh, we referenced several times uh, the Greek word exousia, which means innate power. It's, it's a power that he possesses in and of himself. Uh, you and I have to chase after and grasp, but not Jesus. Uh, and he manifests this exousia, this power, in calling his disciples, uh, in his authoritative teaching and preaching, in healing, and even in demonstrating uh, his power over demonic forces. Jesus' prowess and popularity has attracted uh, the masses, and it's drawn considerable attention, and not just from those who would be fans or followers, uh, also those who are of a religious and political persuasion. The religious leaders have interpreted uh, uh, Jesus as a threat, and so in chapter 2, uh, we see them uh, moving to protect their externally focused uh, religious uh, uh, leadership. Uh, they feel to confront Jesus, and so Mark gives to us uh, a series of controversies beginning in chapter 2. We came to the first of five controversies. Uh, these controversial encounters uh, are coming about because Christ uh, has, uh, beginning, is beginning to, to grow increasingly uh, more of a threat to them as he claims uh, his authority and uh, his identity about himself, um, it becomes clearer and clearer uh, that he's asserting that he is divine. And so tension is building. So the, far, the, the first few controversies have included uh, questions over Jesus, uh, not only Jesus' authority to heal, uh, but even to uh, forgive sin. Uh, then we saw that uh, they questioned Jesus over uh, consorting with tax collectors and sinners. And from that passage, Jesus tells the religious leaders, hey, listen, uh, it's not the well who need a physician. I've come to the sick. Uh, I've come to be a doctor to, to those who are in need of a physician. And then he's questioned a third uh, about feasting with the disciples instead of fasting. And, and from this passage, Jesus talks about being the bridegroom. It's time uh, for celebration for his disciples. There will be a time for mourning. Uh, but now something new is coming, and he gives us the two illustrations of not putting a new patch on old clothing or not trying to put new wine that's not fermented yet into old wineskins. Now today uh, and next week, we're going to come to the fourth and fifth of those controversies, and both of these deal uh, with the Sabbath. However, before we uh, turn to our consideration of this text, I'd like to give a broader context. And to do that, uh, I want to turn to a passage in the Old Testament. If you have your Bible and you want to join me there, you could turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We find uh, in this passage in 2 Samuel 7 the longest divine dialogue uh, since God spoke to Moses. And it's a dialogue that he's going to have uh, with David. And it's a key theological text to understanding the gospel uh, of Jesus Christ. So in this passage, I'm going to read a portion of it. Uh, but in this passage, David has basically, uh, it's dawned on him that he has a house for himself, but there's nowhere uh, uh, for God, uh, God's ark to dwell. And so it's in his heart to want to build for God a house. And so he says that to Nathan the prophet. And Nathan instantaneously responds, um, do what's on your heart. Uh, the Lord is with you. 
And, and then that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, and he corrects Nathan, that Nathan spoke too soon. And so he sends him back to David uh, to say to David, listen, in all the history of, of my relationship with, with uh, my people, have I ever asked for a house to dwell in? No, I, I was content to dwell in a tent among my people. I want to be with my people. That's what uh, God tells uh, David through the prophet Nathan. And then beginning in verse 8, he says, Now therefore, thus shall uh, you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make your na- your, you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall not afflict them, shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall, build a, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So in this passage, uh, God actually promises some things to David. Among those promises are these, that, uh, that the people, his people, will have a land. Uh, and they did. Uh, the, the zenith of Israel was during the period of the united uh, monarchy, from Saul through David to Solomon. But as soon as Solomon's off the scene, things start falling apart, and eventually, by the end of the Old Testament, they're going to be driven from the land. Uh, Israel uh, became a nation again in 1948, uh, but in many ways, they're still surrounded by their enemies. Uh, this passage is, is not true in that sense. Uh, God promises David a house for himself, that is, a, a lineage. He's going to raise up an heir after him, and that heir is going to be uh, the, the next one in line uh, who will eventually uh, establish uh, a throne that will last forever. That son is Solomon. Uh, God uh, raises up Solomon to be the king after David. And Solomon is the one who builds the house of God. He builds the temple. David was not eligible because he was a man whose hands had blood on him. So Solomon builds a house for God. That house is going to be destroyed. Then it's going to be rebuilt. Then it's going to be destroyed by Rome again. And at this point, there is no house of God in Israel. They don't even control the temple mount. Uh, Then he says, this son will will be a, 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 I will be a father to him and he a son to me. And he will chastise him. Then he says, I will build out of your line an everlasting throne, a reign of rest and peace, a perpetual reign. Now, within God's covenant in the Old Testament, two things distinguish uh, God's people. Circumcision and the keeping of Sabbath. Those two things signified uh, that that people were a people of covenant in the Old Testament. That they were holding on to the promises of God uh, for them. And they were signified by circumcision and by weekly keeping of the Sabbath. And as the Old Testament ends, which is followed by a 400-year period, period of silence, the greatest problem for God's people is the seeming failure of God to keep the promises he's made to David. Um, 
You may remember uh, that I've talked to you about an important part of understanding the Bible, especially eschatological texts or, or texts that talk about the future. It's, it's the principle of the now, not yet. And as we look at this passage in, in Samuel, uh, we see that uh, there are aspects of God's promises to David that have seen fulfillment. Uh, God did give the people a land. It just didn't last. Uh, God did raise up a son for, Sol- uh, for, uh, for David. It was Solomon. Uh, but he died. And there has been no everlasting throne. So there's a sense in which some of the promises of God have, have now been fulfilled, but not yet. And it's clear as we consider the, the world today in which we live that this passage has not been fulfilled in its ultimate final sense. But God's promises have not failed. They're going to be fulfilled by the Messiah. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. Everything we've discovered to this point in the Gospel of Mark is an assertion that all that God had promised has not failed. It's about to come to pass in and through the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, just as things are about to get at their worst in the Old Testament as the people are being driven out of the land of God's promise uh, into exile, uh, the weeping prophet Jeremiah writes in 600 BC uh, these words in chapter 31. Uh, uh, He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judas, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So what God is saying through Jeremiah is that his promises are going to be fulfilled, just not in the way that Israel thought they would. Uh, It's going to be not about the old covenant, it's going to be a new covenant, which Jesus enacted through his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. Uh, It wasn't an external circumcision that God was after, it's a circumcision of the heart, that God must remake us from the inside out. This is what God is promising in the new covenant, and Jesus is to be the fulfillment of that. It's not a, 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 a way to God marked by the keeping of the strict adherence of the law or keeping rules, it's about a grace relationship. Where God does something for us, unmerited favor, and we simply receive it by grace through faith. And it's about finding a rest in him, finding a shalom. Jesus Christ is going to be the fulfillment of all of these things. Now during the Old Testament period, uh, people of faith um, recognized their need for God and the need to trust God and await for his coming Messiah to fulfill all of God's promises through Abraham, Moses, David, Um, But there were Hebrews who were Hebrew by bloodline who found it easier to look to something other than God's covenant promise. They would turn to external religious efforts as a means whereby they might earn their way to God. And this helps to explain, at least in part on a human plane, why the religious leaders in Jesus' day, in Mark's writing, could not recognize that Jesus was the Messiah sent from God, despite the fact that he had power to heal uh, power to forgive sin, power to, to demand the demonic. Uh, despite all of that, they couldn't recognize it because they weren't looking for him. They had given themselves to a religious framework of working to earn their way to God. So instead, they were, they were busy 
complicating the spirit of, the, of God's law by adding minutia to it, making it a burdensome thing, actually blocking people from finding God. And this is precisely who the scribes and the Pharisees had become. They were legalists who prided themselves on striving to maintain a strict adherence to a legal uh, code, a moral code, which was, most of it was of their own making. Uh, and they were striving to, uh, to, to earn their way to God, yet their hearts were far from him. He says this numerous times to them. In fact, the only way that self-righteousness works uh, is if we can uh, diminish God, if we can bring God and his word down to something that seems attainable by you and I. This is not only an impossibility, it actually dishonors the glory of God, uh, and it actually misleads people into thinking they have something that they don't have. So the precautionary tale in today's passage for us is that we would mislead ourselves in pursuit of something other than God's answer for us, namely, Jesus Christ, the Logos of God, the Word of God, became flesh. And there's no better example of the Pharisees' legalistic approach in Jesus' day than what they did with keeping the Sabbath. Sabbath is, is uh, the subject of the two final controversies that we'll look at this week uh, and next week. This week, we're going to look at the ludicrous notion of legalism, and next week, we'll look at the lethal nature of legalism. So Mark chapter 2, uh, we'll look at verses 23 through 28. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they were there, made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Since the resurrection of Jesus took place, um, his followers have gathered historically on Sunday uh, to uh, uh, celebrate uh, the consummation of the new covenant. This was the day upon which Jesus was raised. And so uh, in the New Testament period, Christians have not gathered on Sabbath, Saturday. We celebrate the first day of the week, the resurrection. Um, but that's not to say, uh, and I want you to stick with me here, that the spirit of Sabbath, that the idea behind Sabbath uh, doesn't offer us something. But in order for us to see that, uh, we need to first get God's perspective on the Sabbath, and then we'll look at what uh, the Pharisees had done with it. Sabbath, which was God's idea, was patterned after uh, his example uh, that he set at creation. Six days he created, and on the seventh day he rested. The word Sabbath uh, is derived from the Hebrew term Shabbat, which means to rest, to cease, uh, to desist. God modeled for us uh, this principle, not because he was tired, but because he knew something about us. And then he enshrined it, the practice of Sabbath, in the Ten Commandments. It's the fourth of the Ten Commandments. And like all of the other nine commandments, the commandments are given to us uh, to help us. They're given uh, to teach us how to uh, advance in the greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So on the seventh day of each week, uh, God's people were to refrain from working in order to focus their attention on honoring the Lord. Uh, it was meant for their good. It was intended to remind God's people of their dependence upon him and their need for him. And in this, to help them pay attention to the most important part of who they were, which the work week can consume. 
and that is our heart, our minds, our soul. And by ceasing from our endeavors, we can actually focus on the best of who we were meant to be. Over the centuries, from the time of Moses uh, to the time of Jesus, the leaders of Israel had layered uh, numerous laws on top, on top, on top, just minutia to try to keep people from uh, breaking uh, the, uh, the commandments. So in the Talmud, which is an extra-biblical writing, it's a, a book of rabbinical writings, it includes 24 chapters that focus on the Sabbath regulations. These are extra-biblical, man-made ideas seeking to govern the behavior while disregarding the heart. See, the Pharisees weren't concerned uh, in this passage with just how to honor the Sabbath the way God had given it. Instead, they wanted to employ this ludicrous notion of legalism uh, where the law is added to and the teachers of the law would uh, interpret and reinterpret and interpret and reinterpret until there was just so many things it became a heavy burden people could not bear. They called it hedging. So like, here's the command of God. But we so want to keep people from breaking the command of God, let's add a bunch of little extra commands. We'll hedge. That way, if they break these out here, at least they'll never get to this. But the problem is, in hedging around the law, they were actually hindering people from getting to God. Let me give you some examples. They reasoned because you couldn't work on the Sabbath, which was a command, that a person could take 1,999 steps. But if you took 2,000, you would be working, breaking the Sabbath. You weren't allowed to travel 3,000 feet from your own home. But if you staged food at the 3,000-foot mark on the day before Sabbath, it was considered an extension of your home, and you could go another 3,000 feet. It's wrong uh, to work on the Sabbath, so they had to determine uh, what actually constituted work by weight. And so they defined uh, how much you could carry. And the definition they came up with was anything that was heavier than a fig was work. Why a fig? I don't know. Some rabbi came up with it and thought it was a great idea. And so we're protecting godliness with a fig. If you were to throw something up in the air on the Sabbath, you had to catch it with the same hand. If you caught it with the other hand, that constituted working, and you were breaking the Sabbath. Women were told not to bathe on the Sabbath. Why? Because some water might splash out of the tub, and if it hit the floor, that's tantamount to cleaning. And cleaning, well, that's work. Women couldn't wear jewelry. Why? Well, because jewelry is heavier than what? A fig. Women couldn't look in a mirror. They might see a gray hair and be tempted to remove it, and that constitutes work and a breaking of the Sabbath. You couldn't move furniture in your house. Lest a leg on the chair or table drug a mark in the dirt floor, and it would be constituted as plowing, and you would break the Sabbath. Now, to our modern ears, these all seem quite ludicrous. But if we're to understand what happens in this controversy with Jesus and how it affects us, we need to understand what's happening. You see, legalism never elevates God's law. Legalism reduces God's law. It tries to diminish God's law. It tries to pull God's law down to a place where God's law might seem attainable to us, a doable standard if we just work hard enough. And as we're keeping it, we're neglecting the most important problem, the problem of our hearts. And pride is growing inside of us and we'll be tempted to condemn other people because they don't keep the same code we keep. You see how toxic this is? Legalism has nothing to do with what God's law was meant to accomplish. 
It confuses the Sabbath because it moves away from the joyful, holy, merciful excitement that was what one was to have. That God is welcoming me, welcoming me to worship him by his grace. I don't deserve to be there. That he welcomes me into his presence by his work and not mine. I could never achieve that on my own. I'm undeserving of it. Yet he forgives my sin. He hears my prayer. He wants to commune with me. God wants to commune with me. That's what Sabbath is about. What an amazing thing. Say that in your mind right now. God wants to commune with me. That's what Sabbath was about. And yet it had been so distorted that people couldn't find their way to God. An almighty God welcoming us into his presence despite the fact that he is holy and we are not. And that is a thing of grace. Listen, if you're counting your steps, then you're not worshiping God. And this is where the Pharisees are coming from when they raise the issue with Jesus. Their legalistic approach created this stifling, crushing weight on God's people. It didn't represent God's heart at all. And Jesus is stepping onto the scene to say, you know what? God is really 180 degrees different from this. He's going to say, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble and heart, and you will find rest. One of the promises to David, you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So the controversy uh, is the Pharisees are following Jesus on the Sabbath. We don't know how, if they counted their steps, all right? They may well have gone beyond 2,000. But they're following Jesus because they want to catch him doing something wrong. And on this occasion, they see the disciples plucking heads of grain. And uh, uh, the, the Pharisees say to Jesus, hey, look, why are your disciples doing uh, what the, on the Sabbath what they, the law says they should not do, which is to work? Now, given, the nature, uh, uh, this, given our nature, this sort of thing uh, is still a danger for us. In fact, uh, it, it typifies the church that I grew up in. I grew up in a church that had kind of an external list of rules wasn't posted anywhere, you just felt the pressure of them. And if you, could, if you could excel at performing those rules, then you were communicating to other people that you were actually who you said you were, even though your heart was far from God, even though you were struggling with sin that you couldn't overcome. It didn't matter what was on the inside as long as you were performing on the outside. And then rather than doing the difficult work of actually becoming a disciple of Jesus, we settle for something exterior that communicates to other people something about us that is not true on the inside. Listen, if you think that the things that God has taught you, uh, the way that he's worked in your life uh, by his grace, is uh, a reason to look down on others that are not as mature as you, then you've missed the whole point. This is what the Pharisees had done. They were still a country mile by comparison to God, but they could point to all these people that they were better than because they kept a code. And so they come to Jesus and say, hey, you're, you're, you're undermining something that gives us a great deal of confidence. Why are your disciples doing this? And because of their legalistic approach of the Sabbath, they, of course, deemed what the disciples doing to be working. And by their uh, legalistic rabbinic standards, the disciples were guilty of several forbidden infractions. They were reaping, picking the grain. They were sifting, removing the husk and the shell. They were threshing, rubbing the heads of grain. They were winnowing, throwing the chaff in the air. And they were preparing a meal. 
All of those things are forbidden. And Jesus might have taken them to task on adding to God's law, or he might have pointed out to them that in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25, God actually called for the edges of a field to remain unharvested so that precisely so that those who were in need or hungry uh, could glean food. This was God's provision for his people. And that means that the disciples were doing exactly what the Old Testament allowed them to do. But that's not what Jesus did. Instead, without apology, Jesus responds by challenging their authority, by exposing their ignorance of Scripture, and by reasserting that he is God. Verse 25, and Jesus said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. So obviously the Pharisees are familiar with this story about David, the greatest king of Israel. It's just that they didn't understand its meaning. And Jesus' rhetorical question exposes their inexcusable ignorance uh, as the very ones who claim to be experts in the law. The story that Jesus tells is referring to a story that comes from 1 Samuel chapter 21. And it recounts a time when David is on the run from Saul. David, who has already been anointed by God to be king. And he's on the run from Saul because Saul is determined to kill David. And as he's pursuing him, David has to flee Gibeah. uh, And uh, he does so at a moment's notice. He has no provisions. And he and his men uh, are hungry and without proper, proper provisions. And so they arrive at the temple and, or at the tabernacle and they ask Ahimelech, the priest, for food. Now, it's very important, uh, lest you understand there's no problem here. The phrase, in the time of Abiathar, uh, means in the days when Abiathar was high priest. He is uh, apparently mentioned by Mark uh, because of his significant role in uh, the life of David's reign. However, the priest, not the high priest, the priest that's going to give food to David and his men is, uh, is um, <clears throat> excuse me, not Abiathar, but Ahimelech. And Ahimelech is the son of Abiathar. He's going to be high priest, but he's not yet. So the only food that's available in the tabernacle is the bread of presence. Every Sabbath, 12 loaves of hot, fresh bread are brought into the tabernacle and placed on the gold table uh, in the holy place. They picture the 12 tribes of Israel, and they're a symbol of God's provision and his relationship or fellowship with his people. And the old bread, the weak old bread, the 12 loaves are taken out, and they can be eaten by the priest. But... Because of the holiness of the ceremony, Leviticus 24, uh, no one else is to eat this bread but the priest. It's significant in the telling of Jesus' story uh, that God did not punish either Ahimelech or David uh, for this infraction. In fact, uh, Ahimelech is not even the focus. He would have normally been the one to say, no, you can't eat this. This is is sacred. It's left for the priest. The, The focus is on David. Uh, David, and in and, and th- and this way, Jesus is subtly suggesting uh, that it's possible to have such authority that you can do things that you would not otherwise normally do. And what he's suggesting is, is that his authority is at least as great as David's authority. So Ahimelech provides uh, food to David and his men. He allowed the ceremonial law of God to be violated for the sake of compassion and meeting the need uh, of other people. By use of this example, Jesus is literally arguing, and it's shocking to the Pharisees, that preserving a human life is more important, more valuable than ceremony. That God, from God's vantage point, uh, to, to take care of someone in need, to show compassion, to care for God's image bearers is more important 
than ceremony. What Jesus is saying is you've got it wrong. You've got it, you've got it completely wrong. If David, David was able to do this without reprimand from God, then there's nothing wrong with what my disciples are doing. And the sad thing is, is the religious leaders should have known this. In Matthew's gospel and his telling of the story, uh, Jesus adds in chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, uh, these words to the Pharisees. Have you not read the law uh, that on the Sabbath, the priest in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? See, every Sabbath, the ministering priest had to light fires on the altar and had to slaughter animals for sacrifice. Yet, yet they were exonerated from any wrongdoing. Even under the Pharisees' hyper-legalistic standard, some Sabbath violations were not only allowable, they were necessary. And they didn't affect the spirit of a day set aside to worship God uh, and to rest in Him. So having resoundingly quashed the controversy by use of the Old Testament precedent from the life of the greatest king, uh, the king uh, to whom and through whom God's promises uh, have been given, from this precedent, Jesus makes two powerful pronouncements. Number one, in verse 27, and Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God never intended ceremony or ritual or tradition to stand in the way of compassion, mercy, kindness, and goodness uh, toward us or ours toward one another. In Matthew 12, uh, verse 7, quoting Hosea 6, 6, Jesus says, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. The truth is, we're real good at external sacrifices. Like, I can stack some chairs. I can stack some chairs. I can do some stuff. We're really good at that. But the truth is, what God is after, the circumcision of our hearts, the changing of our lives, the forgiveness of sins, the helping us overcome sin, that's something that requires dedicated time and the work of God through the Holy Spirit to make us look like Jesus. And if all we ever do is religious busy work, then we will never change. We'll not only not change, we'll actually become worse as we get older. You know that person. Been in church his whole life. Just keeps getting crustier and crustier. Why? Because what he does is external. It's not about letting God have his heart. You see, the instituting of Sabbath that goes all the way back to creation, you hear me? It's a grace. God wanting you to take time out from, from your endeavors, it's a grace to you. And it's because God knows two things about us. Number one, he knows the limits of our strength. That, <clears throat> so he would give us a day where without being irresponsible, we can rest from our labor. What a sweet and gracious thing. You don't have to work 24-7. Oh, I know you like it. But for the good of your heart, you don't need to. He loves you. Stop it. Rest. Celebrate his love for you. Something good happens to us when we cease being in control of our own lives. And we just make ourselves available to him. And he knows another thing about us, and this is probably more important. Worship is a war for us. We're prone to forget that we need him. We have a, a, a proclivity to, uh, to want to worship our work or our entertainment or our play. We're really good at it in Gunnison Valley. To do that for what's, what it seems to promise us. But God knows it. we're just selling ourselves to a trap. It'll never change our hearts. It'll never help us become the person he wants us to be. It'll never fulfill his greatest promises for us until we learn how to live in the rhythm of rest, his rest, 
his Sabbath, the spirit of Sabbath. And friends, that, that God would, would give us one time a week where we could put aside all other things and turn our hearts in a more intentional and collective way to worship our God, our sustainer and our creator. That's a grace. And when you turn the Sabbath into a burdensome system of minutia, condemning laws, you've missed the point. Or when the Sabbath is about a keepable standard that you can check off the list for, that it's about your righteousness and not your need for God or your need to worship him, you've missed the point. And this leads to Jesus' last proclamation, which is like a slap in the face to the Pharisees. Verse 28, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is the second use of, in Mark's gospel of the title, Son of Man. It comes to us from Daniel 7, where Daniel writes of the one who is given glory and a kingdom and an everlasting dominion uh, from the ancient of days. He is the one who's going to fulfill the promises God made to David in Samuel, 2 Samuel 7. Without hesitation or equivocation, Jesus forcefully reasserts his identity as God. Once again, he puts himself squarely in the place of God, and he's saying to them, boys, what you need to understand, you're criticizing the lawgiver. I was the one who stood at creation and created the idea of the Sabbath, and I know how to interpret it. You're way off base. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, and I know what good God meant for it for his people. God, Jesus is not only the creator of the concept of Sabbath, he's also the one who fulfilled it as a, la a lasting Sabbath's rest uh, according to Scripture. Scripture says that Jesus purchased through his life, death, and resurrection a Sabbath rest for his people where we can rest from our labors, no longer having to strive and contend to try to get to God. We can rest in grace knowing that we are perfectly accepted in Jesus. He has imputed his righteousness to us. For those who believe, we don't have to carry uh, the, the curse of the law. We don't have to live under the curse of the law because he carried our burdens for us to the cross. And he made a payment for that. He has satisfied the Father's requirements and his righteousness is now given to our account. Why? Why in the world would we turn back to a system rooted in self-righteousness and legalism? Jesus offers us a new and better way. Friends, it's the only way. Yet we must be watchful because the seeds of legalism and self-righteousness still live within us. Oh, we don't have silly little rules like the Israelites. We're far more sophisticated. But we judge other people just the same to make ourselves look better. It's still legalism. We have to continue to pursue Jesus Christ and to preach the gospel faithful to ourselves. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that says, you have one hope and one hope alone. His life, his death, his resurrection, his forgiving, his delivering, his transforming grace. And it all comes to us freely in him by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Jesus goes on record in this passage, in this controversy, emphatically to say no to legalism. Because it's ludicrous, ludicrous to think that we can do anything to work our way to God by keeping some code of self-effort. And next week we're going to see how lethal that is. 
But I want to close this morning uh, by saying just a word about something that's equally as harmful. And I think it's as great a tendency in our day as legalism is. And that's the idea of license. A lot of people hear the message of God's grace and what they hear, they hear it with antinomian ears. That is, that now in grace, because all has been forgiven, because Jesus perfectly made the price, there is no need, there is no use for morality. There's no, uh, for a moral standard. They want to set aside completely the law. It's not only disingenuous, it's self-serving. We tend to pick the ones that we don't want to follow. But we all would agree that we probably still ought to keep the commandment that says thou shalt not murder, right? That's probably good. So if we can't set aside that one or thou shalt not commit adultery, then, then we shouldn't set aside God's law completely. It's like saying that there's no need for Sabbath anymore when, when what we're overlooking is, is the good that God intended for us. So legalism is building up an ostensibly attainable code that convinces me I can achieve God's standard. I can attain to God's holiness apart from or at least in addition to Jesus. And as I said a few weeks ago, Jesus plus anything is nothing. That's not a life-giving path. It's devoid uh, of, of God's favor or grace. But license, on the other hand, is taking a view of Jesus' righteousness and perfect fulfillment of the law on my behalf as a liberty to live however I want to live. It's using grace as a license, a personal permission to persist in sinfulness or, or simply uh, to deceive oneself into thinking that I can, I can believe in Jesus, but I don't have to follow him in the way I live. An incredible time this past week. And I was reminded over and over again of the sober weight of my responsibility as your pastor uh, to help you see, if I could use the words of John Piper, the effectual connection between the sin-bearing work of Christ and the sin-killing work of the Christian. Those two things go hand in hand. We've been redeemed in order to become something. We've, we've been redeemed for God. Which means that, uh, as a, according to Ephesians 2, t uh, 8 through 10, uh, we are saved by grace through faith, apart from works. But we've, we've been saved for the work to become God's workmanship, created in advance, good works for us to walk in that God has made for us. So I want to close with a few verses from uh, 1 Peter, and, um, and then I'll pray and we'll be done. Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, Peter is writing uh, about... Um, these great and precious promises that are, are ours in Jesus Christ about our position in him. He says, we've received an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. And then he, uh, dropping down to verse 13, these are the words uh, he, he writes. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not conform to the passions of your former ignorance. See, it's not okay for us to just say, it's all covered in grace, so I can do what I want. No, he, he's redeemed us. There's, there's an implication uh, in between the sin-killing work of Christ, and, or the sin-bearing work of Christ, and the sin-killing work of the Christian. He says, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct, we are called to represent Christ. We are called to walk in the promises that he's given to us. But grace is essential as we follow Jesus. And then in verse, chapter 2, verse 24, and verse 25, he makes the link. 
He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your soul. We dare not preach a grace to ourselves or I to you that pardons sin, but does not empower us to overcome sin. The necessary path between justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and our ultimate glorification one day as we stand before him is the fully devoted Christian life, the process of sanctification. Jesus is liberty from the religion of legalistic self-righteousness, but Jesus is also the grace and transformative power and victory to our calling unto holiness. There is an inseparable link between Jesus' sin-bearing work on the cross and the sin-killing call on the Christian life. Grace is not a license to overlook or trivialize sin. So we need to say no to legalism, and we need to say no to license. There is no wrong time to do the right thing. After all, with regard to the promises of God to David and the promises of God to you, and friend, there are many, as the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. All of the promises of God to you find their yes in Jesus. Everything God holds for you is inextricably tied to the distance you close between you and your Savior. We are called to follow after the one who gave his life for us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have delivered us, that you're in the process of delivering us. We, we confess that we are, uh, in our heart of hearts, still a very uh, self-preoccupied people. We want to be recognized. We, we don't want to wait for the promise. We don't want to wait for the payoff of standing before you and hearing, well done. We would, we would much rather have some instant gratification that says, I'm doing good. I'm making progress. Help us, Lord, to preach the gospel to ourselves that we would turn from self-righteousness, that we would turn from legalism, that we wouldn't hold to a standard in the uh, in an attempt to try to validate ourselves while we're beating up people that you love. Help us to recognize that you desire compassion and not sacrifice. And then, God, uh, keep us by the power of your spirit and by a commitment to your word uh, from veering over uh, to the other extreme where we actually take advantage of your grace. We're all guilty of it, and we repent of it, and we ask you to forgive us for those times when we know we're walking into something that does not please you, that you're calling us away from, but we're banking on being able to pray after it's done, knowing you'll forgive us. God, help us. Help us rather to be captured by the vision that you have for us, a vision to make us more and more the men and women that you intended us to be, a vision of making us the kind of husband and wife uh, that reflects accurately 
uh, the relationship between Christ and the church, the kind of, the kind of mom and dad who, who has a vision for, for where you want our, the stewardship of our children to go, and, and we labor to see them become that authentically, um, genuinely. Help us to be the kind of employer or employee that is captured by Colossians, Paul's words in Colossians that says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. And in all of this, Father, would you remind us constantly that we are seeking to glorify you through the way that we live, not in order to earn something. We have been adopted as sons and daughters. We are the beloved. We cannot make you love us more, and we cannot make you love us less. You have called us to rest in the sacrifice, the completed sacrifice of Christ. And from there, from a place of acceptance and forgiveness and adoption, uh, then to seek to live in such a way as to come to know you increasingly more and to glorify your name and, and to be used of you in the station of life you've placed us in to help other people see the truth about Jesus, that he is a Savior who says, come unto me, I will give you rest. Thank you, Father, that all of your promises to us find their yes in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me? I'm going to close with uh, the words uh, that end um, the book of Romans, uh, the doxology at the end of Romans. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and preaching and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for ages, long ages, and you've been made privy to it. Let, let, let this slap you in the face today. It was kept secret for ages. And all of a sudden, by His Spirit, God's enabled you to see it. But has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God. Be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen.